Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Wednesday Update. There are a number of items that I want to announce on today's podcast and some comments by listeners that I want to go over with you. The first announcement has to do with the paper that I submitted to three different publications a few weeks ago. You may recall that I did a three-part episode on the literary complexity of the Savior's visit to the Nephites recorded in the Book of Mormon in 3rd Nephi chapters 11 through 27. Although I had written that paper some years ago, I had never submitted it anywhere for publication, and once I dusted it off and made some corrections, I had announced to you that I was submitting it to three different publications. I have received rejection letters now from two of those three publications. The first was from the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies. I heard back from them not too long after I sent them a copy of the manuscript for their consideration. I was advised by the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies that for the next year and a half, they are going to be pursuing a certain theme in their journal, that the papers related to that theme are already in the can, accepted, and ready to go, and therefore, my paper was rejected because they would not even be able to get around to considering publishing it for another year and a half. So out of consideration to me, they let me know that so that I could pursue submitting it to other publications for their consideration. Yesterday, I heard back from the second publication, which was BYU Studies, and from the editor-in-chief of BYU Studies, Stephen Harper, I received the following notification. Thank you for submitting your manuscript to BYU Studies. I read it carefully shortly after receiving it. For the past six weeks, I have tried unsuccessfully to find qualified reviewers who have time and attention enough for it. Because I have not been able to obtain qualified reviews, and because I could not publish it for at least a year in BYU Studies, I have decided not to publish it. Consider submitting it to the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies, which I already have, or the Interpreter, which I already have. Respectfully, Stephen Harper, Editor-in-Chief. Well, that is the second rejection letter I have received for my manuscript, but the young and aspiring author must learn to take these rejections in stride. The only publication to which I've submitted my paper that has not responded yet is The Interpreter Magazine. That is an online journal. So if and when I hear back from The Interpreter regarding my paper, I will be sure and let you know. The second has to do with the hearing that was held in front of the Utah Records Committee last week, in which I devoted an entire episode to playing the actual audio from that hearing. You may recall that at the end of the hearing, the Records Committee ordered BYUPD to turn over to them all 40 emails so that they could review the emails in chambers, i.e. in camera, and make their own independent determination whether the claimed privileges that BYUPD was asserting those privileges of attorney-client privilege and work product apply to any or all of the emails at issue. I am pleased to announce that the committee has issued their decision and order. They did so last Friday on May 15, 2020. Once again, today's date is Wednesday, May 20th, 2020. That's why this is called Wednesday Update. But here is what they say in their order. By this appeal, petitioner seeks to have access to records alleged to be in the possession of respondent Brigham Young University. Well, actually, it's more than alleged. It's proven at this point. Facts. On May 14, 2020, the parties appeared electronically for a hearing before the State Records Committee. Respondent, that's BYUPD, respondent argued that the requested record should be considered non-public records pursuant to attorney-client privilege, and there they cite the grammar code for both attorney-client privilege and work product. In order to determine whether the requested records are considered non-public records pursuant to the attorney-client privilege, the committee voted to review the records in camera 
as allowed by the Utah Code, and they give the citation there. Order. Therefore, it is ordered that the appeal of petitioner <clears throat> is continued until the June 2020 committee hearing and respondent, Brigham Young University, is ordered to provide the records to the committee for in-camera review. By the way, it's just slightly humorous that they write the respondent's name as Brigham Young University because really that's what's going on. But technically, the respondent is supposed to be the Brigham Young University Police Department. It looks like they have pierced that veil, either intentionally or unintentionally, by naming the respondent as Brigham Young University. They then go on in their order to put in the boilerplate of the right to appeal, which I expect that BYUPD is going to avail itself of. Once again, I do not believe for a second that BYUPD is actually going to turn over these emails to the committee for their review and let them out of their hands because then they run the risk of the committee making the boneheaded decision to actually release some of these emails to me and through me to the public. After the right to appeal, it talks about a penalty notice, which has to do with penalties that incur to BYUPD if they do not file an appeal or follow the order of the committee. And then it is signed, Kenneth Williams, the chair pro tem of the State Records Committee, entered this 15th day of May, 2020. So that's the announcement on that order. Once again, we will see what BYU does next, or technically speaking, BYUPD does next. The ball is in their court. They either turn over the records to the committee or they appeal this order. And I will give you very good odds that BYU is going to appeal that order. I will let you know when I find out what it is that BYUPD decides to do. The next announcement has to do with the recent podcast that I did with Jonathan Streeter regarding Joseph Smith's practice of polygamy and specifically his polygamous marriage to Sarah Ann Whitney, the daughter of Newell K. Whitney and Elizabeth Whitney. That was a three-part podcast and it was titled, A Bad Defense is the Worst Offense, because not only did it deal with the historical documents and circumstances surrounding this particular marriage, but it also dealt with the arguments that some apologists use in order to defend Joseph Smith's practice of plural marriage. And one of the apologists at the forefront of that battle is Brian Hales. His name came up a couple of times during my discussion with Jonathan Streeter. Well, one of my listeners, Angie Coulter, posted the following comment regarding Brian Hales and Joseph Smith and the practice of polygamy at the RadioFreeMormon.org website. It was so insightful that I wanted to read it for you here. Here's what Angie Coulter has to say. RFM, if a historian is supposed to gather records and discern the most probable truth, then Brian Hales is fired. I know history can be quite subjective, but Hales has a massive conflict of interest. He has zero credibility. Having him explain Joseph Smith is like having a corrupt police force do their own internal investigation. Here's why. I liken the bias Hales has with Joseph Smith and the church to the codependent relationship a woman has with an abusive alcoholic husband. Stay with me on this, she writes. Joseph is the selfish, entitled, boorish, loose cannon, alcoholic addict who wreaks havoc on everyone around him using up all the resources and room. He leaves a trail of heartache and wreckage in the wake of his insanity and expects everyone to fall into line with his crazy, destructive, insatiable compulsions. He goes out on the town with a Friday paycheck and drinks himself into delirium. Now, of course, she's speaking by analogy. He goes out on the town with a Friday paycheck and drinks himself into delirium and comes home angry and stumbling, puking all over the living room, smashing into things and scaring his family. Brian Hales is the wife 
who finally gets him tucked into bed while she spends the rest of the night cleaning up after him, erasing any evidence of his raging rampage and damage. Never mind the years of abuse she continues to suffer at his hands. She is protecting herself as much as anyone from the truth of her marriage. Part of that denial involves constructing excuses for her husband's behavior, which she never confronts him about. The next day, she acts as if everything is fine, and if someone notices that a lamp is broken or something is askew, she comes up with the explanations and excuses for her husband, ever shielding him from any kind of accountability. Why does she do this? Because she doesn't think she can make it alone without him. His abuse has her psychologically and emotionally dependent on him, convinced that she is nothing without him. It's classic. Brian Hales cannot break up with Joseph Smith or the Mormon Church for the same reason. After listening to his mental contortions, I honestly don't know who is sicker, Brian Hales or Joseph Smith. Well, thank you for that comment, Angie Coulter. I wanted to read that because although I have heard the analogy made between the LDS Church and its members being like an abusive spouse or an abusive parent, I have never heard it fleshed out in such a way so insightfully so compellingly, and then turning that argument on to some of the apologists who try and make excuses for Joseph Smith's practice of plural marriage. Well done, I say. Well done. Okay, now a special message that I received from a listener named Josephine. She posted this message, and I have to give a little bit of background on this message. I have the ability at the RadioFreeMormon.org webpage to go behind the scenes because I'm an administrator. I can log in and I can see what messages have come in. I read through them. I approve them. I reply to them. And as a general rule, those messages come in in response to different podcasts that I have posted up at the RadioFreeMormon.org webpage. Well, this particular message was not in response or not posted under any of the podcasts. Instead, it came in under the category of about. And although I hate to tell you how technologically unsavvy I am and how unacquainted I am with my own webpage, which by the way, Bill Real was kind enough to set up for me, I did a little bit of research after receiving this and thinking, what is this about category, this category called about on my webpage? And I went back and I found there's a link at the top of the webpage where I can click about and then there are a bunch of comments that have racked up there. These are comments that I have basically never seen before and they go back two years now. So there are a lot of you who are hopefully still my listeners who have submitted comments over the past two years, never received a response from me and I've got to confess to you right now it's because I never even knew that there were messages there in the about category. And I want to get to some of those messages here in a minute. But first off, I want to read this message that came in from Josephine yesterday. Now, first off, Josephine gives me this P.S. at the end of her message. And the reason I read it here first is because it will help put in context the things that she says during the balance of her message. She says, P.S., I am trans. So some of the activities I've described doing in the Mormon church, such as getting an Eagle Scout or participating in priesthood sessions, don't match up with my gender. Just hope that explains the apparent inconsistencies. Well, it does. And I know that I'd gotten this message from Josephine and I was reading about Eagle Scout and priesthood session and I was a bit confused, but that helps put it into context. Now, I have asked Josephine for her permission to read this on the air and she has given it to me. So I want to read this message now. From Josephine, it begins, Dear RFM. I remember how I first found you, Josephine writes. 
It was September of last year, so that would be 2019. For the past summer, I had been lost and confused. I didn't really understand what this was all coming to. There was just a general sense of unease that had bubbled up under the surface for me. I had learned about polygamy from my seminary teacher in April or May of that year. So once again, this would be 2019, just a year ago. I remember reading over that section of the Doctrine and Covenants, so that would be section 132, and asking myself, how could God have let his chosen men become so bankrupt? I remember feeling something else. I remember feeling a sense of anger. I was angry that the church refused to own up to Joseph's mistakes, and they kept throwing the women he married under the bus. It was a difficult feeling to let myself experience. I had never felt it before at the church, and it felt wrong in a way. I was cautious in letting myself feel it. It had to be restrained, because I wasn't allowed to get mad at the leaders of the church. They were apostles of God, after all. Then I remember Elder Oaks coming to speak at a temple devotional in May. I was interested in what would be said, but I was also slightly cynical. However, my eyes widened as I listened in horror while he railed against the outside world and its morality. He talked about how things were getting worse for people. Then he complained about the prevalence of gay and lesbian lifestyles. I could not believe that an authority of God was saying such things at a temple devotional. At that time, I knew I had to get out of the room. I got up and couldn't stop muttering to myself in shock and disbelief. I knew that the leaders were homophobic, but there was just something different about being so up close and personal to such a thing. Why would he say these things? Over the summer of 2019, over the summer, I was pretty intensely questioning the idea of God. I also found myself bothered by the culture of restriction that the church presses onto its members. I didn't want to get married young, which is something that church leaders want you to do. But so much of this was under the surface and hard for me to see. These were more feelings rather than conscious thoughts. I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what it was. It was like being on a train that was accelerating imperceptibly. I didn't realize that I was going anywhere because the change in velocity was so subtle. Then I remember going back to school after the summer. I saw an episode on one of my favorite podcasts about Joseph Smith and the Mormon church. I wasn't sure if I should listen to it. It was anti-Mormon after all. But the train was going too fast already. Too much momentum had been built up. I began listening to it, and I was shocked as I listened to them expose so much about Joseph Smith. There were so many things I didn't know about. I didn't know he was a treasure digger. I didn't know about the heartbreaking ways he treated Emma. I didn't know about his dishonesty. There were so many things that I just didn't know about. The train had crashed. What now? At this point, my faith was tenuous at best. I remember that I googled, I don't want to be Mormon anymore. I was confused and angry. I found the ex-Mormon subreddit, and after browsing through it, I found a reference to your podcast. In a way, I felt like Neo in The Matrix. I knew something was wrong. I just didn't know what. It felt like I was standing on the edge of the ledge in the beginning of the movie and was too afraid to climb down. But you were like Morpheus. You had reached out to me from outside of the Matrix, 
and put a comforting hand on my shoulder as I stood half in and half out. I still was not completely sure what this all was going to lead to, but I had ripped down some of the veil that surrounded me, and you had given me a hand to clasp onto. I listened to your episode called The Prophet Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. This episode was when it all completely came crashing down. I remember when you criticized President Nelson. I alternated between flinching in fear to cackling maniacally as I realized how dishonestly he had tried to defend the November policy and its rollback. I was instinctively afraid of the bullets he had shot at me, but you taught me that there was no need for fear. You taught me that there was no spoon, a reference to the Matrix. I realized that the bullets were in my mind. There was no reason to be afraid of criticizing President Nelson. He was just like the rest of us. I smiled in relief as my entire worldview came tumbling down. You pulled me out of a hall of mirrors and illusions. You woke me up from a dream. Yes, that's it. I was dreaming. I didn't realize it at the time, but I was. I was caught up in a dream so real that I was unable to wake from that dream. For the next week, every other thought was about the church. I remember that this was a roller coaster of emotions. I went from seething anger to tranquil peace. I went from the depths of despair to absolute depression. God was gone. Everything I had thought was gone. I felt betrayed by my community. I felt separated from them. I could talk to very few about this. I felt constrained as I attended seminary and priesthood and Sunday school lessons. I felt like I was trapped in an invisible cage and it felt as if I couldn't breathe. I couldn't talk about any of these things openly. But at the end of the day, you were always there. You were a true friend throughout all of this, even though you don't know that I exist. Well, I do know that you exist now, Josephine, and I'm very glad that you listened to the podcast, and I'm very glad that you wrote me this letter. This is a wonderful letter. It's very well put, and that's why I wanted to read it to the audience on the air. I feel like I know you, she goes on. I feel like I know you so well that you should at least know a little about me and my journey. Now I have been telling everyone about my true belief, and I no longer feel constrained. I can fly. But this flight comes at a cost. I can no longer go to Sunday school or priesthood. The church is not built for me. My bishop has been kind enough to create an extracurricular study group in which I can participate and be open about my true beliefs. However, normal worship services are essentially closed to me, unless I keep my mouth shut and don't talk openly about what I believe. I can't do that anymore. I have been a good Mormon for the past nine years. I've served in leadership positions in all of my quorums. I've given talks. I've been the first to get an Eagle Scout in my ward in 10 years. But despite all this, I am not allowed to be open about my true beliefs in worship services. This is the tragedy of the church. But you have always been there and you will be there hopefully for years to come. Well, I share that hope with you, Josephine. I hope I'll be here for years to come too. Thank you. I appreciate all the work you've done. I hope that I can be a friend to you as you've been a friend to me through these dark times. Thank you for helping me escape gravitational fields. Sincerely, Josephine. And then her P.S., which I read at the beginning of the letter. 
So I wanted to thank you so much for that letter, Josephine. And once again, you put it so well and so articulately and so movingly, frankly, that I wanted to share it with a broader audience. Thank you also for giving your permission to allow me to do that. And I will tell you that as I was reading your letter just now, it made me think of one of my favorite poems by Walt Whitman. It's not a long poem. He wrote some real doozies as far as length goes. This is a short poem, very meaningful, and this is what your letter made me think of. Let me look this up right now. It can be found in Leaves of Grass, a collection of Walt Whitman's poems. It's number 85, and it's titled, As I Lay With Head in Your Lap, Camarado. The titles to his poems are frequently just the first lines of his poems. And this is how it goes. So I want to dedicate this one to you, Josephine, by way of Walt Whitman. As I lay with my head in your lap, Camarado, the confession I made, I resume. What I said to you in the open air, I resume. I know I am restless and make others so. I know my words are weapons, full of danger, full of death. Indeed, I am myself the real soldier. It is not he there with his bayonet who is the real soldier. It is not he there with his bayonet and not the red-striped artilleryman. For I confront peace, security, and all the settled laws to unsettle them. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love Walt Whitman. It's been a while since I read this poem. For I confront peace, security, and all the settled laws to unsettle them. I am more resolute because all have denied me than I could ever have been had all accepted me. I heed not and have never heeded either experience, cautions, majorities, nor ridicule. And the threat of what is called hell is little or nothing to me. And the lure of what is called heaven is little or nothing to me. Dear Camarado, I confess I have urged you onward with me and still urge you without the least idea what is our destination or whether we shall be victorious or utterly quelled and defeated. That is the poem by Walt Whitman, As I Lay With Head in Your Lap, Camarado. And once again, this is the poem that your letter, Josephine, made me remember and want to share it directly with you and more generally and broadly to my entire audience. Okay, now let me go to the RadioFreeMormon.org webpage and actually click on the About link at the top of the page. There's Home, that's where I spend most of my time. There's Episode Archive, and only yesterday did I realize that there is an About category here, which I'm clicking on now, and it brings up all the different emails and messages that I have been sent by listeners in this category since March 30th of 2018. Oh my gosh, it's been over two years that these messages have been accumulating, and I didn't even know it. There are 46 messages that have accumulated here. The first is from Suzette Smith, where she says, Hi, RFM. This is from March 30th, 2018. By the way, this announcement I am making is my way of saying, I didn't know that all these messages were here. I didn't know you'd send all these comments, listeners, and I apologize for not having responded or even acknowledging them. And it's because I didn't even know they were there. So I'm going to read a few of these comments here. I just want you to know, thank you for sending the comments. Please don't think I was ignoring you. I hope that you haven't gotten frustrated and walked away thinking I was ignoring you and are not listening anymore. But the first one from March 30th, 2018 was from Suzette Smith. And I was just seeing this for the first time yesterday. Sorry, Suzette. 
Hi, RFM. I love every one of your podcasts, and I listen the instant they are posted. I always love your general conference breakdown. Oh, I see. This is from March 30th, 2018. So this is right before general conference of 2018. She says, I will be listening to all five sessions starting tomorrow and will be taking notes. Maybe we can talk afterward and share thoughts. Let me know what you think. <laughs> okay. Well, this is Suzette Smith who had the podcast, The Asher and Grow, for a while at the Mormon Discussions website. So, Suzette, I was not ignoring you. I didn't even see this until today. Sorry for being over two years in responding to you. On September 16th of 2018, a listener named Ryan says, I love every episode I've listened to so far. I especially enjoyed Wrong Roads and your recent discussion with Bill Reel about the Saints book and Young Single Adult Broadcast. I appreciate the time, research, and thought that goes into each episode. I really enjoy listening to your take on things. Thanks, RFM. Signed, Ryan. On October 6, 2018, Ray, R-A-E, says, You are a genius. Wow. Thank you. I love your podcast. So very articulate, cutting through the crap. Well, I'll tell you something, that the degree of my, my articulate... <laughs> The degree of my articulateness is directly proportional to the amount of time I spend editing these podcasts after I'm done recording, but thank you so much for that, Ray. On October 9th, 2018, so at least we're less than two years ago now, Anne says, your podcast is the best out there in my opinion. I appreciate the time and effort you put into each podcast and have shared so many. Thank you for what you're doing to help me deprogram the brainwashing I developed over 47 years in the so-called church. Can't wait for your next episode every time. Well, thank you for that, Anne. Now, I've got to say, I'm not going to read all of these comments, and I apologize for that. I'm going to read some, but not others. I'm going to sort of pick at random. I'm certainly not going to read all 40-plus comments on this episode. Most of them are very, very complimentary, and I appreciate that. I feel like it's okay for me to read a few complimentary messages at this part of the podcast, since I started out by talking about the two rejection notices I received at the beginning of the podcast. I think this sort of helps balance things out. Oh, here's one from Cece, December 3rd, 2018. This was when I had posted the recording of Bill Reel's Disciplinary Council. That's how far back these go. My goodness, I'm sorry. Cece says, just listen to the disciplinary session recording for Bill Reel. Bill presented his case beautifully. Are you listening, Bill? I hope you heard that. Bill presented his case beautifully. I struggled to hear most of the others, but bravo, Bill. From a fellow convert who was no longer a member, resigned, the spirit was truly with you. And RFM, <laughs> and RFM, the Are You Man Enough selection by the Four Tops, Dayum, couldn't have picked a more perfect closing hymn. Huge thumbs up, guys. Thank you for that, Cece, and thank you on behalf of Bill, Cece. I think he did a great job presenting his case at the Disciplinary Council as well. Oh, and here's a comment which is not so laudatory. I want to make room for those that are somewhat critical of the podcast as well. This is from January 14th, 2019. It is from C.C. Othout. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. O-A-T-H-O-U-T. C.C. Othout says, I'm listening to your podcast. I believe Article of Faith number nine answers the question and concept you have been discussing. We believe all that God has revealed, all that he does now reveal, and we believe that he will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. This listener says he believes that that article of faith explains the matters you were discussing. I'm sorry, I don't know exactly what podcast that this is referring to because it's been so long, but this listener thinks that this article of faith explains the matters that we were discussing, probably me and Bill, completely. 
The principles of which you speak, he goes on, or she goes on, the principles of which you speak have not changed, even though the rituals have. Ah, okay, it was about the changes to the temple endowment that Bill Real and I did do a podcast on. The principles of which you speak have not changed, even though the rituals have. The issue of to whom Eve covenants obedience, in my opinion, finally recognizes a woman's role as an equal partner with her husband, which has always existed. A man and a woman have different roles in the plan of happiness. Okay, so this listener apparently subscribes to the separate but equal argument of the LDS Church in relation to the different roles of men and women. They are separate but equal. I do have to add that the United States Supreme Court in the seminal case of Brown versus Board of Education, I believe it was, back in the 1950s, ruled in response to this argument in favor of segregation, the Supreme Court stated, separate is inherently unequal. This listener, though, concludes with, You gentlemen appear sincere, but are seriously blinded in your pursuit of logic. Well, thank you for that comment, Cece Othout. I hope that you are still listening to the podcast and enjoying it. Now, on January 17th, 2019, a listener named Chris posted this comment in the About section. Once again, I'm reading this for the first time. This has a great deal of information in it. I cannot vouch for the accuracy of this information, but I will read it to you and attribute it to this listener named Chris. He writes this, RFM slash Bill. Thanks for your efforts and insight into the great Mormon meltdown that appears to be underway. Upon listening to your podcast episode covering the recent changes in the Temple Endowment and recalling Bill's earlier podcast where he called out a number of predicted changes and announcements coming to the LDS Church in October 2018 conference and beyond, I wanted to let you know about an unusual church project that I was drafted into a few years ago. Hmm, this sounds interesting, doesn't it? I think it adds some context to your comments and conclusions about the catalyst for these changes. Nice alliteration there, Chris. And provides insight into the mechanisms in use in the modern church. So here's the story from Chris. Once again, I can't vouch for the accuracy of it. A close friend of mine in Utah Valley who has made a lot of money and who subsequently developed a relationship with a number of apostles and other GAs was given a special calling along with several other trusted members in Utah under the direction of Elder Ballard via the local area authority. This program may have been more widespread than that, but if so, they weren't talking. At any rate, the purpose of the calling was to specifically address the current and growing epidemic of young people going inactive or outright leaving the church. The numbers cited by the area authority were that over 70% of LDS youth were going inactive by age 21. And even more dire was the fact that the church was losing about 50% of all returned missionaries. I've heard these statistics before. I think these are by and large correct. The direction given was to spend several months gathering data where the rubber meets the road, on why this was happening, and then to come up with a list of suggestions of how the church might change or take action to turn this around. This sounds completely believable. My friend was admittedly a good candidate for this assignment in that he has an excellent relationship with young people in general, and had just finished up as a YSA bishop at a BYU yard. BYU ward. He called me and enlisted me as a consultant. So Chris claims to have first-hand knowledge here. He called me and enlisted me as a consultant on this project because he knows that I have four kids in the target demographic, as well as a lot of experience working with youth and young adults in and out of the church. He also knows that I have a lot of opinions about the shortcomings of the church in addressing critical issues that may well be at the heart of this crisis. 
Hmm. Long story short, we both did a lot of work researching the causes and possible responses to this harsh reality in modern Mormonism, and compiled our findings into a report that was then provided to the Airy Authority to present to Elder Ballard. I have to say that I was disappointed in the report that actually made it back to Salt Lake City, because it was obvious that although we came up with frank and honest analysis of the causes for the problem, as well as very pointed suggestions as to what the church might do to address it, I felt that the report was whitewashed and watered down so as to protect the faithful credibility of those delivering it and to avoid falling victim to a shoot-the-messenger reaction from Ballard. Well, I got to tell you, even though I can't vouch for the accuracy of this story from Chris, it sounds completely, totally believable. Nonetheless, at the time, I felt good about the fact that the project happened at all, and it demonstrated a willingness on the part of Elder Ballard, at least, to listen to the insights of the little people. Most of all, it showed an awareness of the fact that the church is indeed facing a crisis, the declarations of Elders Cook and Holland notwithstanding. Now, two years later, with these fairly dramatic changes being rolled out by the church on a nearly continuous basis, my friend and I recently had dinner and recalled the details of the report we delivered and realized that while not everything we suggested has been addressed, every change that has been announced so far was represented in some fashion on our list of suggested changes or actions. Good job, Chris. It tells me several things, Chris concludes. It tells me several things. Number one, the church is willing to listen to and adopt bottom-up change, even if it is not necessarily a publicly acknowledged process. And I agree with you, Chris, that is a good thing, although it does make you kind of wonder what the point is of having a prophet at the head of the church if you have to go through this process to find out what to do to address the problems. But nonetheless, I agree with you, it's a positive thing. Number two, unless the list was delivered into the hands of Jesus to get the final stamp of approval, policy and doctrine come from a source that may be different than what we have been taught. Okay, I said what I said before I read number two. Chris comes to the same conclusion as I had. Number three, the leaders of the church are looking at the numbers and are running a little scared. Rather than go on and on here, if you'd like more detail on what our suggestions were, let me know. Chris, I'm sorry, I'm seeing this comment from you from January 17th, 2019, over a year ago, for the first time, right now, as I'm reading it on the air, May 20th, 2020. Yeah, I would love to find out in more detail what your suggestions were. So I'm letting you know by this podcast. Keep up the good work, Chris writes, and don't get bitter. Bitter? Perish the thought. Always remember that every single one of us is full of shit. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't say that. That's what Chris wrote. Always remember that every single one of us is full of shit. <laughs> well, good comments. Good comments, Chris. Thank you for that. Thank you for that story. And thank you for sharing it with me so I could share it with the audience. George Long writes, It was 35 years ago, but I believe we were in the same student ward at the University of Texas when you were there. Oh my gosh. Well, uh, it certainly could be. And I'm sorry, I don't exactly remember you from the name George Long. I do remember a David Long who was there. Perhaps you're related to him. Perhaps you're somebody else completely different. I apologize that I don't remember you from your name, George, but I'm glad that you're listening to the program. Hook 'em horns. Rico, on March 21st, 2019, writes, Your podcasts clearly show a passion for knowledge and clear, rational thinking. It seems we both grew up at a time when the Mormon church was at least trying to show that its beliefs were based on good reasons. I agree with that. It does seem to have been a different time back then. That's why I could relate with many of the things you say that those of the younger generation will probably not grasp. 
Keep up the good work. Thank you, Rico. I will do so. And thank you for confirming my recollection that the LDS Church was in some important respects very different 40 years ago and even 30 years ago than it is today. Colette Larson writes on April 4, 2019, I'm sitting here with my brother discussing your podcasts. He has also become a fan of your podcast. And after listening to your most recent podcast where you mentioned President Stout, he was the president of the Kobe Japan Mission when I arrived there in January of 1980. President Stout, yes. After listening to your most recent podcast where you mentioned President Stout, thinks he might have served in Japan with you. Do you remember Elder Randy Larson? Oh my gosh. No. I'm so sorry, I don't. I've got a horrible memory. A few names I remember. I'm lucky if I actually remember the names of my companions from Japan. I don't remember all of them, but certainly I might have. If so, he'd love to connect with you by phone or text. His number is, and then she gives a phone number. I should call that number. I'm sorry, I'm just seeing this now. Colette, please tell your brother that I'm sorry that I did not respond to him earlier. Sure, I'd love to make contact with him. And if he would like to contact me, he can send me a private message over at my Facebook page at Radio Free Mormon. That would be great as well. Thanks again for sharing your brilliance. Oh, thank you, Colette. And then she signs it, Colette Larson. You know, one thing about this podcast is it has allowed me to connect with people that I knew before and also people I never knew before and would never have met otherwise. I'm certainly able to enlarge my circle of acquaintances, associates, and even new friends through this podcast. And that's one of the reasons that I am so grateful for having done this podcast in the first place. Bubba Greenbow, or Greenbow, B-O-W, says, First-time listener, and I am very impressed. You are the second LDS guy I have met in my life who has the honesty to question LDS doctrine as God-given, and the first to publish it from within the church. Oh, it sounds like Bubba is a nevermo. He says, I admittedly am not LDS. I rejected it after being approached by LDS guy number one (laughs) and engaged with him for about two years. Infinite regression of gods was the death knell. But I always appreciated his demeanor, which I hear in your analysis and posture. Instead, I turned to the gospel of grace, specifically Molinism's reconciliation of man's free will and God's sovereign will, Sorry, that's a little bit outside my field of knowledge, but I I get the general gist of what you're writing. And read thinkers like Rabbi Zacharias. Oh, I think that he passed away recently. I'm sorry to hear that. Who has built some bridges with the LDS Church. Keep up the good work. Blessings. Thank you for that, Bub. I appreciate your writing in and those comments. Bob writes with a question on September 18th, 2019. This may be a dumb question. Bob, as the Chinese say, there are no dumb questions, only dumb people. (laughs) No, seriously, the Chinese don't really say that. I think Rodney Dangerfield says that. I think what the Chinese say is that the only stupid question is the one that goes unasked. Anyway, Bob writes, this may be a dumb question. Joseph had visions slash visitations. How do you differentiate between the two? Did Jesus and the Father actually come to Joseph or was it a vision? And does it matter? He says he would like to keep his identity off the record at this time. Well, I hope that giving his first name of Bob, by which he posted in a public forum on the RadioFreeMormon.org webpage under the About section, is not revealing his identity too much. And honestly, I have no way of knowing how to answer that question. Whether when Heavenly Father or Heavenly Father in Jesus Christ or just Jesus Christ alone is reported to have appeared to Joseph Smith in the grove, whether that's a vision that he's seeing or a visitation, whether they're actually there or whether he's just seeing a vision of them being there and they're not there personally, I have no way of knowing. I do know that recently, I think it was Steve Harper who was being interviewed. He's um, one of the historians at the Church Historian's Office and actually the editor of BYU Studies who just sent me that rejection letter that I read at the beginning of this podcast. Oh wait, don't be bitter. 
Don't be bitter. <laughs> um, yeah, he was being asked that question. Maybe it was Mormon Land. I think it was a Mormon Land podcast where he was being asked the question whether this was a vision or a visitation that's described in the first vision. And although I don't know of any way that we could actually objectively determine whether that's the case, I mean, first off, you have to believe it actually occurred. But if you presume the fact that it occurred, I don't know how you could objectively determine whether it was a vision or a visitation. I mean, it is called the first vision and it has been called the first vision for a long time. It's still called the first vision. But he wanted to, if I recall correctly, come down pretty heavily on the side of it being an actual visitation of the father and the son to Joseph Smith. I'm not sure that he had any reasons that I remember that he gave for feeling that way, but I do recall that that was where he wanted to come down. I expect there are some theological reasons that lie behind his wanting to come down that way because I'm unaware of any historical reasons that would support that conclusion over it's just being a vision. Anyway, thanks for that email and that question, Bob. Sorry I didn't have much to add to the subject, except for the fact that I don't know. And by the way, I have learned through sad experience that it is often that if I don't know the answer to a question, the best answer I can give is, I don't know. So although it may not have been a helpful answer, it was the best answer I could give Bob. Thanks again for writing. Oh, I see that a listener responded to Bob's question six months later on March 27, 2020. This listener who goes by RFM Supporter for Truth says, go ahead and read the material from Grant Palmer. And to summarize, it's all in Joseph and his followers' heads. Pretty much every time the word vision is used, that's a sign. Further evidenced by a lack of visions, except from loose sources and perpetuating of members' beliefs that there is modern-day revelation after the death of Joseph. So in other words, he's saying that there is a lack of visions reported after the death of Joseph. This listener continues, there's even speculation Joseph and his family had access to some hallucinogenic stuff on the side too, but it's harder to prove that. Though really, once you find out about Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, it's hard to reconcile what they did and said with what the current Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints teaches. And this last thought in this comment strikes a chord with me because after doing a lot of research and a lot of podcasting about Joseph Smith and the way that he presented himself as a prophet, the current leaders of the church are on the horns of a dilemma because they claim to receive their prophetic mantle in a direct line from Joseph Smith. They claim to be prophets in the same way that Joseph Smith was a prophet and the horns of the dilemma on which they find themselves is that if Joseph Smith was not a prophet, then they can't be prophets either because they have no line of authority. But if Joseph Smith was a prophet, then they're still not prophets because they are not prophets in any way similar to the way that Joseph Smith was a prophet. That's the horns of the dilemma on which the current leaders of the church find themselves, in my opinion. To summarize, if Joseph Smith was not a prophet, they are not prophets. And if Joseph Smith was a prophet, then they are really not prophets. Jackie writes on October 3rd, 2019, I think you sound just like Elliot Gould. You know, Ross and Monica's dad on Friends. Well, I'm going to choose to take that as a compliment, Jackie. Thank you very much. Other people think that I sound like Kelsey Grammer from Frasier. And whenever somebody says that, I always respond, I'm listening. Oh, another listener named Lynn agrees with Jackie. I think he does too. Smiley face. Okay, well, I guess we have two votes for Elliot Gould and zero votes for Kelsey Grammer at this point. Brent Reed writes, RFM, how can I search your site for something I believe I heard you discuss? Specifically, I'm looking for a discussion you had about Dallin Oaks talking about sister wives in heaven recently, but I'd also like to be able to find other things you've discussed in the past. Thanks. 
Brent Reed, I'm sorry, I am not aware of any search function that is available to search out different things I've talked about on my podcast. But then again, I was unaware until yesterday that there is an about feature on my webpage that I can click and find all of these comments that have been made over the last two years. So I don't think I can help you with your general question. As to your specific question, I do recall Dallin Oaks talking about sister wives in his talk in the October 2019 General Conference, and I made a few comments about that in a podcast released shortly after that. I hope that narrows down your search. Mindy writes, November 18th, 2019, I just listened to all seven parts of your interview on Mormon stories. That's the one I did with John DeLynn in November of last year. I still want more. Love your podcast, your humor, and your knowledge. You're like a potato chip. You can't have just one. Well, thank you very much for that, Mindy. I hope you've been appreciating these nine weeks now of Radio Free Mormon putting up a new episode every weekday. A listener named Carl writes on December 10th of last year, I have just discovered your fantastic podcast, Radio Free Mormon. As such, I am a bit late to the party, but at least I have made it. Well, welcome to the party, Carl. Currently, I am attempting to catch up on past episodes. All I can say is thanks. I really needed to hear what you're saying. I just recently heard the episodes on Defending the Faith in which you played audio tapes of two classes you taught 30 years ago. It's actually... 12 classes total. I have nine of them up, three more to go. But maybe at this time I only had two classes up and that's why you're saying two classes that you taught 30 years ago on defending Mormonism. Have you considered doing an episode where you critique your arguments in defense of the Book of Mormon? It appeared that you were using the Book of Mormon as evidence for the Book of Mormon being true and that you were making several assumptions for which there was no basis. Thanks again. Thank you for that, Carl. I appreciate it. Yes, I have considered and many people have suggested that I do a podcast in which I critique the arguments I made 30 years ago. I have resisted doing that mainly because I want those lectures to stand as they were originally given, not only out of respect for the work and the commitment and the faith that I had in those arguments at the time, but also to stand as a reflection of where I was at that moment in my life in 1989, unadulterated with me peeking in and correcting myself from 30 years later. And frankly, as I have listened to those lectures for the first time in 30 years prior to putting them up on the podcast, I am pretty impressed, if I do say so myself, at the depth of research that I did into the subject matter and at the persuasiveness of my arguments. There are places here and there where I probably would have not said exactly what it was I said or I might correct the record where I get a few things wrong. But by and large, those are the exceptions rather than the rule. Wouldn't it be funny if, after 30 years, I listened to the lectures that I gave back in 1989, and 1989 Radio Free Mormon ended up converting 2020 Radio Free Mormon back into the LDS Church. Now that would be a story. Unfortunately, I don't think it's a story that's really going to happen, but that would be a story. Thanks again for that comment. Carl. Here's a comment from a listener named Thomas Revere. We're getting closer in time now. This is from February 23rd of this year, 2020. He says he suggests looking into a document which is titled Myths of Onanda, written in the 1880s based on interviews from people there in the 1820s by a local amateur historian in Rochester, New York, describing treasure hunting in the Rochester area in the 1820s. Well, that sounds really interesting, doesn't it? 
That would be in the same area and location and time period as Joseph Smith's treasure digging. Apparently, an individual named Zim Allen used a diamond or a stone that he could use to see back through history and describe the early inhabitants of the area who buried gold, had wars of extermination, etc. And that was used to lead the treasure hunters to a location. Well, that sounds very interesting, Thomas Revere, and he gives me a link to a paper there, so that's very helpful. Thank you for sharing that information with me. I will look into that some more when I have time. On March 18th, Matt writes, I think it would be interesting for you to tackle this. And there he gives me the text of an address that was given by Dallin Oaks Friday, March 13th, 2020, so that's recent, at the BYU Church History Symposium. So here is President Dallin H. Oaks of the First Presidency addressing the Church History Symposium, presenting them with what appears to be a historical paper, which one would presumably think would rely on history and historical sources, and yet he talks about the inspiration he received in writing this paper. Here's what he says at the beginning. I am pleased to be part of this important symposium sponsored by BYU and the Church History Department. My participation is a review of some of my personal conclusions and experiences, guided by vital inspiration in writing about the Prophet Joseph Smith in various capacities for more than 50 years. I will present no additional research. Oh my gosh, here's here's President Oaks. He's sitting there, he's presenting a paper at the Church History Symposium at BYU. He's not going to present any new research or even new insights, he says, from the treasury of the Joseph Smith papers. Instead, he says, I will reference a book and three articles in professional journals and a published speech at a scholarly conference in Illinois. I have titled my remarks writing about the prophet Joseph Smith. So here comes Dallin Oaks to present a paper that is based on nothing except an admitted rehash of stuff he has either written or read before. Boy, this sounds like a huge yawn. Oh my gosh, and when he starts with suppression of the Nauvoo Expositor, that's his first subsection. Guess what's to the left of it? If you guessed a Roman numeral, you go to the head of the glass. Yep, even here in this paper, Elder Oaks is going to be dividing up his subsections by Roman numerals. Yep, Roman numeral one, suppression of the Nauvoo Expositor. Roman numeral two, Carthage Conspiracy. Roman numeral three, the Prophet Joseph Smith's bankruptcy and property at death. Yeah, this sounds like a real interesting talk. Roman numeral four, Library of Congress speech. Oh my gosh, here's where he's going to talk about the speech he gave in 2005 at the Library of Congress. He says, I represented the church and gave a paper on the suggested subject, Joseph Smith in a personal world. Here are some examples. This is what he writes. Here are some examples of what I was prompted to say about the prophet's personal qualities. So it's got to be always the inspiration. He was prompted by God to say this kind of stuff in his Library of Congress speech. Let's see what it was that was so important that he was prompted to say it. One of Joseph's personal gifts is evidenced by the love and loyalty of the remarkable people who followed him. He had a native cheery temperament. That's a quote from Joseph Smith himself describing himself. He had a native cheery temperament that endeared him to almost everyone who knew him. We have record of many adoring tributes like that of an acquaintance who said the love the saints had for him was inexpressible. And now he goes on in the same subsection. By the way, I'm not reading this word for word, but I am scanning it to see if there's anything of interest. He says, as I look back on that evening, that would be the evening in 2005 when he gave a speech at the Library of Congress. The thing I remember best is what the nine scholars not of my faith did not say about Joseph Smith's translation of the Book of Mormon. So the thing he remembers most about the evening was what the nine non-members did not say 
about Joseph Smith's translation of the Book of Mormon. Okay, that's what he remembers best. They concentrated on various subjects in Joseph's life and his influence, but only one speaker mentioned the Book of Mormon other than by merely referring to it by name. Professor Robert V. Ramini, a University of Illinois historian who also served as a U.S. congressional historian, gave this admiring description. Significantly, it falls far short of explaining how Joseph produced the central witness of his prophetic ministry. Okay, so what Dallin Oaks remembers most is that the nine non-Mormons, non-Mormon historians did not say that the Book of Mormon was revelation from God or that Joseph Smith dictated it and translated it by the gift and power of God. That's what he remembers most. Here's what Professor Ramini said. What is truly remarkable, really miraculous, is the fact that this massive translation was completed in 60 working days by an uneducated but highly imaginative zealot steeped in the religious fervor of his age. As a writer, Professor Ramini said, I find that feat absolutely incredible. 60 days, two months to produce a work running over 600 pages and of such complexity and density. Unbelievable. Now that is an incredible, glowing report about Joseph Smith's dictation of the Book of Mormon. It may be a little bit off on some of the facts, but it's an incredibly glowing report of the Book of Mormon by a non-member who was not only a University of Illinois historian, but also served as the U.S. Congressional Historian. And right before quoting this glowing report, Elder Oaks states, significantly, it falls far short of explaining how Joseph produced the central witness of his prophetic ministry. So even though there's this wonderful glowing report from a non-member, super scholar, and former U.S. congressional historian, apparently that's not good enough for Elder Oaks. No, all the non-members have to agree that the Book of Mormon was dictated by the gift and power of God. Otherwise, their descriptions, no matter how laudatory, fall far short in Elder Oaks' mind. Okay, that's all I'm going to say about that talk by Elder Oaks. You can thank me later. Here's a comment from Emily from April 2nd, 2020. This is in relation to my seven podcast series, General Conference McNuggets, that I started out this nine-week stretch with. In your recent podcast, General Conference McNuggets, part four, you talk about the opening of the young women's theme. You propose that Heavenly Mother is only included by implication when it reads, I am a beloved daughter with heavenly parents. Emily writes, I don't even think she is implied. That is to say, there is not one she. Therefore, the only reason Heavenly Mother is not named specifically is because that would imply singularity. Only one mother in the equation. As Heavenly Father is the one father. Terming it Heavenly Parents therefore allows room for multiple mothers as per the not-emphasized doctrine, by which I think Emily means plural marriage of Heavenly Father. I wanted to read that comment. I think that's an excellent insight, Emily. Thank you for sharing it with us. And then on April 5th, Mitch writes, RFM, my wife and I recently left the church, and your podcast has been a saving grace. We love how deeply you elaborate on each point that you make. This has helped us to solidify our decision and find comfort in it. We are both returned missionaries, and we were talking the other day about Preach My Gospel and how manipulative it teaches missionaries to be. I'm not sure if you have done a podcast on it or not, but we would love to hear your thoughts on it. Well, thank you for that, Mitch. That's another great idea for a podcast. Dale Whitman on April 20th writes regarding a podcast I did about the appearance of the Sermon on the Mount in 3rd Nephi in the Book of Mormon and how that, I felt, was a smoking gun showing that the Book of Mormon was of modern, or at least early 19th century, authorship. Dale Whitman writes, Dear RFM, my wife and I greatly appreciate your podcast and the tremendous effort that it requires of you. I am a retired law professor and know several of your old professors at UT. Really? Wow. 
great. I thought I would like to offer an additional comment about the use of the Matthean material known as the Sermon on the Mount in the Book of Mormon. And by the way, now Dale Whitman goes into a rather lengthy, even though he does it by bullet point, exposition on why it is that scholars believe, and I tend to agree with him, that the Sermon on the Mount never actually existed as a sermon originally. In other words, it describes a sermon being given by Jesus, but it is almost certainly a description of a sermon that was never given. Instead, it is a collection of random sayings of Jesus that were collected and perpetuated over time. And then when it came time for the author of Matthew to compile his account, he had all these sayings left over, which didn't really fit anywhere else, and so he plugged them all into one sermon, and said, hey, this is a sermon that Jesus gave. And actually, let me just go ahead and read this here. I'll read it quickly, though, because I think these are excellent points that Dale Whitman gives. I think it is helpful to consider the provenance of the KJV and Book of Mormon materials side by side. The biblical material is almost universally agreed by scholars not to represent a single sermon by Jesus, see, but rather is drawn from a collection of sayings that were collected by some previous author from oral traditions and then adapted by the author of Matthew. We can make the following generalizations about this material. Number one, it was almost certainly not a single continuous sermon. Number two, it or its components would almost certainly have been originally delivered in Aramaic, since that was the common language of the residents of first century Palestine. Number three, it's doubtful that there would have been any stenographic record of these sayings, i.e. nobody sitting around writing it down as Jesus is saying it, and later compilations almost surely had to depend on the memory of those in the original audiences. Number four, the Aramaic material must have subsequently been translated into Greek, although we don't know by whom. So in other words, the original Gospels, at least Matthew, and I think all the rest, frankly, were originally written in Greek. So in other words, they were written by someone who almost certainly was not the fishermen and the Palestinian Jews who were actually Jesus's apostles. It is almost certain that they were uneducated, that they probably did not know how to read or write, and if they did, they even more certainly did not know how to read or write Greek. They would have been reading and writing, if at all, in Aramaic, and that is the language they would have been speaking, including Jesus. Number four, the Aramaic material must have subsequently been translated into Greek, although we don't know by whom, since that is a language in which the author of Matthew wrote. There's an argument that the author originally wrote in Hebrew, which was subsequently translated into Greek, but we have no Hebrew manuscripts which purport to be original. Number five, the Matthean text was copied and recopied multiple times to produce the Greek manuscripts from which the KJV translators worked. Number six, the KJV translators, of course, rendered those Greek manuscripts into English. By comparison, if we assume the historicity of the Book of Mormon, now he compares the KJV version of Matthew to the Sermon on the Mount as it appears in the Book of Mormon. By comparison, if we assume the historicity of the Book of Mormon, number one, the original sermon would have been given in some form of Hebrew, a derivation of the Hebrew of the 6th century BCE, with extensive evolution over the centuries among the Nephites. Right. Number two, it's unclear whether any stenographic record was kept or whether and to what extent the Book of Mormon record depended on oral transmission. Number three, the Nephite oral or stenographic record was presumably translated into Reformed Egyptian by the relevant Nephite record keepers. And number four, Joseph Smith rendered the Nephite Reformed Egyptian record into English. That is how we would get the Sermon on the Mount as it's recorded in Third Nephi chapters 12 through 14 in the Book of Mormon. Dale Whitman concludes, when one considers the completely different routes by which these two versions of the Sermon on the Mount come down to us, it is simply absurd to imagine that they would be virtually identical in their English versions. The vagaries of multiple copyings and translations would surely have produced English texts at considerable variance with one another.
The conclusion is obvious. The Book of Mormon version is not a translation at all, but is simply a wholesale plagiarism from the KJV. The high degree of correspondence or intertextuality between the KJV and Book of Mormon simply cannot be explained in any other way. I'm glad I read through the entirety of the comment because I think that is an excellent analysis, not only looking at the similarities between the two records, but how the two records, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount in the Book of Mormon, would have been transmitted from the original sermon by Jesus, if indeed there was such a sermon, down to how we have it today in the Bible and the Book of Mormon. And the conclusion, I agree, is ineluctable. The high degree of correspondence between them cannot simply be explained in any other way than wholesale plagiarism on the part of the Book of Mormon from the King James Version. Well, I am an hour and a half into recording this podcast. By the time I'm done editing it, it will probably be closer to an hour, but I better stop now. I want to thank everybody who has sent me emails, private messages, commented on the Facebook page, commented on the website, and commented in the About section of the website. Thank you so much. I appreciate your listenership. I appreciate all the comments, all the letters, all the questions, all the suggestions, and even the occasional criticism. I appreciate it all. Thank you so very, very much. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.